Ephesians chapter 5. Um, I'm going to have you look at verses 22 and 23. I'm aware of our time. Um, I've titled this The Model Marriage. And if you were a part of the conference, and I was trying to labor how I would approach the Sunday school, knowing that some of you this morning may not have been at the couples conference. So I don't want it just to be like a couples conference part two, but I did want it to be, since this is a couples class, oriented on that theme of your marriage. So I'm going to give you kind of a, in a quick fashion um, why I would say the model marriage. I'm not implying that your marriage is a perfect marriage, but I would definitely state that our marriages need to be marriages that are being perfected. We should be on that path of maturity in marriage. This is the model that we have, and it would have been the third point uh, within the first meeting as far as that, the fourth point in the first meeting on Friday night, that we are to display the gospel through our marriage. So let me just jump right into verse 22, uh, and I want you to note what I would say for the first point, this, this lost model, as I'm going to call it, this lost model demonstrates what the culture is missing. It says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, if you're in Ephesians 5.22 and you're like, well, what about verse 21? It's, you know, if you've got a Schofield reference Bible, maybe you see that it's kind of coupled in the same section. If you're not using any kind of an application Bible, it's just kind of running together. I'm not going to go on a lengthy tangent. Uh, years ago, a pastor had said to me, we were chatting, and he had said, well, you know, you can appreciate the, uh, the biblical languages, Eric, so you recognize that in verse 21, you've got some pronoun antecedent that goes back all the way into verse 18 and the relationship with the Holy Spirit. And even though, yes, grammatically... I would say that is correct. I don't believe that what it's stating is that somehow this is, the, this is the passage of Scripture that if a man says, yes, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord, that he's abdicating his leadership in the home. Let me give you a point and example of this before you're like, is he, is he going off on a, a, a wacky rant uh, away from what the Bible teaches? No. My neighbors are unsaved. We have a great relationship with all of our neighbors. We love them. Our kids are able to interact with them, and we've witnessed to them. Uh, this couple in particular, just within the last month, Gail was able to start coming to some of the ladies' meetings, and we're praying that she's going to get saved. Um, we've been their neighbors for 15 years. Uh, her husband, Tim, they don't have any children, but her husband, Tim, uh, he, he uh, told the Jehovah Witness who comes by, he claimed me as his pastor, which I took as a compliment because he's, he doesn't come to our church. He's not saved and I'm not his pastor, but I thought that was a neat inroad. We were talking in the, uh, in the drive between our two homes not too long ago. I mean, it was, it goes, uh, when did I shave my beard? About a year ago. I had a beard for a couple of years and there's nothing wrong with that. My savior had a beard, so we're not going to go down that tangent. Uh, they plucked out the, the hair of his face, so th th we're not going to go down that road, but I had a beard, and at some point, I had asked my wife, I had said, so uh, do you have any particular thoughts about this? She's like, I like it either way. I like, the, I like it with a beard. I like it without a beard. Um, I think you're fine. And I would said, but okay, let's just, let's just be honest where the, where the rubber meets the road. Does the beard become a problem to you in any way? So like if as my wife, you were kissing me, does it feel like you're kissing a porcupine? And she's like, a little bit. I'm like, would you prefer that I not be a porcupine? She's like, well, in that regard, it might be better. I'm like, okay. The beard comes off. I shaved my legs. I mean, it was, it was everything. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. 
I walked out, and it was probably a week or so later, and I didn't have the beard anymore, and, and that was just me and my wife having a private conversation that it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like my wife was saying, it looks terrible, or you have to do this, but I just thought, hey, there's an easy button here that I'm going to go ahead and push, and if my wife says she'd kind of prefer it without, I'm, I'm fine with that. I didn't feel like, you know, my manhood was tied to it, so I was talking to my neighbor and he has, he's got the Grizzly Adams beard going on, and we were chatting, and he had said to me, he'd said, oh, you shaved your beard. His wife was right next to him, and she's like, it looks really good, Eric. <laughs> and I already knew where this conversation was going. She's wanting him to do something with that uh, dead badger that was hanging on his chin. And uh, she's like, she then said it, which I'm like, oh, this is going to get awkward. She's like, I sure wish Tim would, you know, shave that. And he's like, no, no. And I wasn't going to try to go into marital counseling with my unsaved neighbors on a gravel driveway, but I thought that's one of those areas where simply being able to submit one to another as unto the Lord. I didn't abdicate my leadership in the home. I didn't say, okay, Elizabeth, that's it. I'm giving up. I'm giving up on the family. I'm giving up on child rearing. I'm not going to be the father, the husband that I ought to be. You know, that's all on you, and I'm going to be a lazy husband. It, it's simply that there are so many ways in which we don't have to make it that, that I'm going to pull the card of I'm the husband, I'm the dad, when those decisions don't have to be that way. Here we have the model, the lost model that the world doesn't know. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Notice it says as unto the Lord. Submit yourselves. It's a voluntary submission to their own husbands. We don't find the external coercion as the basis for the submission. It's not implying that the wife is a lesser partner in the marriage union, what it does show is obedience to the Lord. Colossians 3.18 says, similar, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Ephesians 5.33, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. The word submit comes from two words, hupotasso in the Greek. It means to arrange in an orderly manner, to put under, to subdue unto, if submission in your mind is storming out of the room in a huff, unable to speak to your husband because you're so mad at him, you're not submitting, you're scorning. Submit yourself shows that they're to force themselves. It's not something that the husband should have to force upon them. Again, this isn't about male chauvinism, but about God's created order in the marriage. Let me give you an illustration quickly. If two kids come into the room and they're squabbling about who hit who first, you don't really have to worry so much about the order of events. You just know that the operation by which they should have been operating is not intact. As a parent, I'm not going to waste time trying to figure out that Andrew hit Ethan. Okay, Tom, so he hit, you hit him first. What did you do when you did this and then that's why you hit him? Okay, let's back up because you weren't totally honest. So then he did that. I don't have to worry about that. If they come in squabbling, I already know what's going on. Neither of you really are walking within the operation of what you need to do. When you have two individuals that walk in harmony and they are agreed, they're able to walk in such a way that the operation, as under the Lord, both wives and husbands, means that the order that's given isn't as much of an issue. It doesn't become so much of a squabble because they are walking as they should. Submission isn't so much to that which is churlish 
I think of 1 Samuel 25, 1 to 29, Ab Abigail and Nabal. His name meant a fool. It says he was churlish, severe, cruel, rough, stubborn, obstinate, and impudent. Submission isn't so much to that which is churlish, but it is as unto the Lord. Theologically speaking, then, the wife must first submit to God before she can submit properly to her husband. Again, the wife would first submit to God before then she would submit to her husband. The husband's leadership within the home, the order, stems from his walk in the very same way, as unto the Lord, or walk with the Lord. Strife in the home is born out of two individuals who refuse to work on the operation but constantly squabble about the order. Interestingly enough, what the world presents as real manliness and what the Bible teaches are two different things. We've come so far in our culture that now an overfed, unkempt guy loafing in a recliner with a remote in his hand, watching a football game while his wife frantically scurries about trying to care for the house and the kids and everything else somehow is viewed as manliness. I'm going to highlight again something I'd shared with the men yesterday. It's an article that is well worth your read. You can find it online for free, or if you wanted to come by, you could snap pictures of this. It's about three pages in length. It's by James Freeman Clark. He penned it in 1886, and it's simply titled True and False Manliness. I won't take time because I don't have it, but going through this, he says and makes the case, the false notion of manliness leads boys astray. He talks about how truthfulness is another element of true manliness. Let me just give you this excerpt. Lies usually come from cowardice because men are afraid of standing by their flag because they shrink from the opposition or because they are conscious of something wrong which they cannot defend and so conceal. Secret faults, secret purposes, habits of conduct of which we are ashamed lead to falsehood and falsehood is cowardice. And thus the sinner is almost necessarily a coward. He shrinks from the light. He hides himself in darkness. Therefore, if we wish to be manly, we must not do anything of which we are ashamed. He who lives by firm principles of truth and right, who decides no one, injures no one, who therefore has nothing to hide, he alone is manly. The bad man may be audacious, but he has no true courage. His manliness is only a pretense, an empty shell, a bold demeanor with no real firmness behind it. He gives so many other points along this line of what is true manliness that those that are holding on to kind of the chauvinistic view of I've negated the operation with which I'm to function as a husband, but man, I'm going to trounce my wife regarding the order. That's wrong. Homes where you have men who somehow try to take the Bible as the basis of bashing their wife upside the head, that is wrong. That's not biblical manhood. You know that the verse in Deuteronomy that says that the men were supposed to take a year off of work, they couldn't serve in the military, they were not allowed to engage in the sale of property so that they might cheer up their wife. Do you know that the Hebrew word for that is samak? I think that's funny. Samak. I mean, I know that there might be some men, if you couldn't work, serve in the military, and you're like, I'm cooped up with my wife for a whole year. She's just going to smack me around the house. I don't know what to do. Okay, the job there, as far as getting to know her, is on you. The impetus is that you might know your wife. First Peter 3.7, husbands dwell with your wives according to knowledge. 
experientially, how well do you know your wife? Do you know her fears? Do you know her struggles? Do you know her hurts? Do you know the last time that you offended her and you weren't even aware that you had offended her? Have you ever asked? Do you care to know? Are you able to say, is there anything between me and you? I say as we pray together, and again, our, our marriage and our home is not the model for everyone. We know the Bible becomes the basis of the model marriage. But one of the things that I like to pray with Elizabeth, each day we take time to pray together. We take time to read together. It doesn't have to be long, but often it'll be out of the Proverbs. I might read five, she reads the next five, then I read the next five, etc. But as I pray, I will daily thank God for my wife, for my marriage, for my children, for my home. I want her to hear me praying thanking God for her. By the way, it's a whole lot harder to hang on to grudges and bitterness if you know that you got to thank God for your spouse. Sometimes it's in our thanklessness it becomes the greenhouse of contention. If you keep going back with a short account to God, thanking God for the marriage you have, you start to reflect Christ's love to us. Notice secondly in verse 23, the lost model demonstrates what the culture is missing, but this loving model demonstrates what Christ gave. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. A loving marriage fulfills the emotional purpose. It fulfills the social purpose. It fulfills the physical purpose. It fulfills the spiritual picture, according to this verse. We know that in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 13, there's a list and it doesn't have to be something that you go through exhaustively every day, but it shouldn't just be once every five, ten years that you go through the list. Consider that love suffers long, it's kind, it envies not, vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, isn't easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, doesn't fail. Love extends into glorification, whereas faith and hope are fulfilled in glory. It's why charity, love, is the greatest of those three. In heaven, think of this, you will not have to have hope. You don't have to have hope in heaven. Why? Because in that day, you'll walk by sight. It also means you don't have to have faith. In heaven, we will not have to have faith. What was given in prophecy will be fully completed and revealed in glory. So that means I don't have to walk by faith. I don't have to walk by hope. But I will still, for all of eternity, be able to show love. One of the ways that I think this picture can be seen in my own marriage is I know if I'm going to love Christ for all of eternity, which I will because I'm a child of God, it means that I ought to love Elizabeth till death do us part and be able to show this picture, to show this model. Christ is the Savior of the body, but in the picture, the husband should also be, I put it in quotes, the Savior, the deliverer of his wife's body. He provides for her. He preserves her. He protects her. Let me read you, and I'll finish with this quote. It's from Albert Barnes's notes on this passage. As Christ gave himself to save his body, the church, as he practiced self-denial and made it an object of intense solicitude to preserve that church, 
So ought the husband to manifest a similar solicitude to make his wife happy and to save her from want, affliction, and pain. He ought to regard himself as her natural protector, as bound to anticipate and provide for her wants, as under obligation to comfort her in trial, even as Christ does the church. What a beautiful illustration of the spirit which a husband should manifest is the care which Christ has shown for his bride, the church.